everybody. It's Wayne with Mark and Areed, and we are so excited that you've come to watch the Eat Community Podcast. We know you're going to enjoy it. We actually did it live originally on our Eat Community webinar series, which we also invite you to come to, but you will love this podcast that you're going to be listening to right now. Hi, good afternoon, good morning, wherever you are in the world today. Uh, my name is Lisa. I'm with the Economic Action Team. And with me today is Lorena Castro from Sieben Linden Eco Village. Uh, we're going to have a nice conversation today, but first I'm going to do a little introduction about what the Economic Action Team is. So since 2010, the Economic Action Team's mission has been to bring you, the community, engaging and inspiring conversations with economic leaders and innovators, learning about their experiences and insights on how to create a more sustainable future. Our guests represent a wide range of backgrounds and expertise, including environmental activists, sustainability professionals, entrepreneurs, academics, and community leaders. The Institute of Economics was founded in 1980 by Dennis Weaver, an actor and environmental activist, with the goal of promoting sustainable and eco ecologically sound economic practices. Weaver believed that it was possible to balance economic growth with environmental protection and sustainability, and he sought to create a platform for businesses, individuals, and policymakers to come together and work towards his goal. Dr. Wayne Dorbind is the founder of the Economic Action Team, and he's a serial entrepreneur. He's in the background with us today. He's the chief economic instigator and the mastermind between the, behind the EAT paradigm. So uh, gaining guidance from other entrepreneurs in the marketing industry, he created this platform, the Economic Action Team, to build a place for people around the world to gain necessary skills, share information, and live an economic lifestyle. So Dr. Dorbin currently runs Mountain Sky Ranch, a sustainable alpaca farm in Berthold, Colorado in the USA. And he oversees operations on multiple aquaculture farms nationwide and is president of the Institute of Economics, a not-for-profit organization. And I am Lisa Sandhusen. I'm a member of the Economic Action Team. I'll be leading today's uh, conversation. And I have Arib and Mark with me. And today, we're very happy to have Lorena Castro join us from Seaman Linton. So welcome, Lorena. Thank you for being here with us. Yeah, hi. <laughs> so uh, let's jump right in and tell us a little bit about what your background is, how you came to Seaman Linton, and what your interest is just as so people can get a little idea about how you became uh, the volunteer coordinator, how you're at Stephen Linden. Um, yeah, so I was born in Mexico and I lived most of my childhood and adolescence in, Me in Mexico. And then once I started studying biology, I or yeah, I, when I was an adolescent, I was already interested in sustainability and therefore decided to study biology. And once I started studying biology, I got to interact with nature like in a one-to-one -one level way more and started traveling. And through traveling, I discovered that there's communities that like decide to live outside of city structures in a very different way and way more connected with nature. And that really inspired me and motivated me to spend, yeah, when I was in a teenager, then the dream was like, finding my founding my own community with my friends which is, i think is a very typical dream of <laughs> people that are interested in communities and but then i started discovering also like the like the, the benefits um of joining communities that already exist that have already like established structures and so i lived for a little while in a small community in canada and then in another one in the south of mexico and then I studied my last semester of university in a university in Germany, in the center of Germany, that does a lot of agroecology research. And there I had an agroforestry lesson, 
and I was interested in getting to know agroforestry projects for real. And so I just like Googled like places around me that have established agroforestry projects. And I came to Sieben Linden through that because they have an agro we have an agroforestry project here. Um, and then I was like, okay, well, it's a really cool community and it's pretty big and interesting. And then I found that one can do a voluntary service here. And so I was finishing my thesis. It was Corona time. I didn't want to live in a city in a lockdown. And so I came here to like be sort of like a woofer, like doing like a couple hours a day of work in exchange for food and accommodation. And then I could have enough time to write my thesis. And afterwards, like I was then done with that and after six months and then I just decided to stay because I liked it here so much. And that was three years ago now. And I was a volunteer in the gardens. Yeah, that was I didn't mention that. Um and then I was offered a position in the garden team. And now I'm also part of the leaders team in the garden and became the volunteer coordinator last year as well. And we have a group of in total we have different organizations that have different volunteers but in total we have like around 12 volunteers and half of them are international and half of them are germans in two different programs and yeah i coordinate that with another person and we yeah make sure like part of my mission is as well that we spread our mission and our values and our work beyond our community and I feel like volunteers are a really good way because then they like come learn something for a little while and then take it somewhere else, spread it further away. Oh, that's lovely. And and uh, what inspired you to stay besides COVID? It, it besides the lockdown, it's even Linden you, you, with your experience in in different communities. I'm curious to hear more about what um, attracted you to intentional communities. Can you share more about that and, and what you like about Stephen Linden and share with us, uh, share with the listeners a little bit about the history of Stephen Linden. And you said it's a little bit, uh, established. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, so Stephen Linden was founded in 1997. Um, and we are around 150, 160 people out of which around 40 are kids. For like underage people um, and yeah like it's been here for 30 years and so it has a lot of really established structures and like a lot of very functional ways of working together and I remember for example at the very beginning one of the things that fascinated me the most is our food system we have like a cooperative and every one of us or yeah, like there's an organization that takes care of that, that we have enough, like that's like our grocery shopping for us, so to say, like they make sure that we have enough food and all of like our basic needs cover at all times. And for that, like they've been doing that for many years and they're already like knowing like what is more or less like the budget that we need for a year to cover all of our needs. And then at the beginning of the year, uh, we come all together and it is said, okay, like we are gonna have this food available, like not only from the garden, but only, but also like, I don't know, like rice and pasta and like um, detergent or like, like really toilet paper, like everything we need. And all of that costs X amount of money uh, for all of us together. And then we all together um, see like how much can each one of us pay for that. And I don't know the name for that method in, in English. In German, it's Bieterverfahren, but... Say that again in German? Bieterverfahren. It's just like coming together and having a sum of money that needs to be reached collectively, but instead of just like splittingly equally into 150 members, then there's people that pay, I don't know, for example, a month, like 300 euros a month, and there's people that pay 70 euros a month for the same products in the end and um, you pay what you can give and then we collectively see that we manage to reach this amount and then we just go to the sellers and take everything you need and like you don't have to say like how much you're consuming or like I don't know you're not just only allowed to take a certain amount if you just paid a certain amount or something like that but like you can really just take whatever you need in the amount that you need it and it's always available for you like really you can just go to the sellers and take it and that was something that really fascinated me at the beginning. I mean, I still feel like really thankful and appreciate this structure, but it was really like something that I didn't know at all before I came here, that so such a thing was possible. And 
I found that really cool. And I think something else that I really appreciated about it and or that I appreciate still, that that's a little bit more like Germany and then like in international communities, it's even more like Germans have a really like open, direct way of saying things. <laughs> and that helps a lot with communication. And um yeah, I don't know, like in Mexico, like my culture and I feel also in the United States, I lived in the United States for a while as well. Um people are sometimes like more kind or like try to like say things around to not hurt people or something. And Germans are really just like blunt and say things like, hey, that was not okay for me. Or like, hey, I would wish if you do this differently, or I've been expecting you to do this for a week now and you haven't done it or something like that, which at the beginning can feel like really harsh if you're not used to it. But it also saves so much conflict in the end because everything is just said from the start directly. And yeah, <laughs> like we have, very different like communication tools and structures and with like nonviolent communication and we meet three times a year as a whole community and do what is called in intensive time where we also um, get experts in different fields come to us and teach us further tools or like help us I don't know with moderation with difficult topics for example or um, provide like different workshops or tools so that we can like further develop in our communication skills and yeah that's so amazing as well like then we all take some days out of our lives to do that and like to make sure that we are like uh, nourishing our community structure and our community yeah like web um wow that sounds that really beautiful so does when you say the entire community participates is that the the youth as well, like the, the, what's the youngest age and the oldest, is it like everybody participates in that to their ability? Is that how that works? That's, that's a good question. Are, you know, are, <laughs> are children welcome to sit in and, and you know, listen to the, to the community structure and, you know, how do you, that's, this is really, um, uh, I'm appreciating your enthusiasm, like, about it like um so i'm really curious to hear about the the experience of it and what it would look like what that community uh gathering looks like and how do you in integrate the, it, the generations yeah i mean yeah that's also definitely a point that i learned here it's you're always um in a mixture of like different ages of different people and any type of gathering i mean like we don't only gather these three times a year that i mentioned like those like are like special intentional gatherings but i don't know we have like festivities during the week sometimes or general assemblies or um our seminars or events where there's like then also opportunity for all of us to gather and there's people like the oldest person in the village, for example, is close to 80 years old and the youngest person in the village is six months old. And it's very typical that we're like all mixed together and like participating in, in one discussion, for example, with different generations. And it's really interesting as well to learn to come together and to listen to, for example, the point of view of this person that is three generations older as you and or for those older people to understand like the opinions of the, for example, the teenagers right now that like have a completely different vision of the world or like completely different needs or, um, yeah, and that's, and but there's also like so much appreciation and we all know each other. And so also like at some point, the age for me kind of like gets like blurred out. Like in the end, I'm just like connecting with people and we all have different backgrounds and different ages and therefore different experiences. But in the end, we're only old people and that's something that I've really learned to appreciate and like all this mixture also like not just saying like hey no if you're older than this you cannot come or this is only meant for this age group um but really all of our events are open for everyone that sounds like really nice to experience so the uh I'm curious to hear more about the um the 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 collaborative uh experience with the uh with the food budgeting and the and the uh, the household goods items and that sharing, do people have is the village um, economically uh, have their own? Does 
economics or do people work outside have jobs outside the the village or how does how do, how does the economic structures weave together? Mm -hmm. It's a mixture. There's people that have a job outside of the village and then, um, yeah, like commute every day outside of the village to work and then come back and live here. There is people that are self-employed, for example, and I don't know, sometimes are outside, but sometimes can also offer online whatever they do as a job. And there's people like me that work in the community for the community. and everyone has a salary like I also earn a salary out of the job I do and yeah therefore we have like money available and I mean yeah I have a mixture for example I work in the garden um which is working in the community for the community and I also am a yoga and acro yoga teacher and offer seminars and that is for people outside of the village that come as guests and receive that um, yeah, like that's like you could consider that's like a little bit like self-employed and offering something for outside, but being here. Yeah. Right. So tell us, share with us about the uh, agroforestry and the gardens. How long, um, how long have the has the agroforestry program been happening? Is did that grow along with the um, eco village? You said it was started in 1997, right? And uh, so, what was the uh, core intention of the the core creators of the of the eco village. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, it depends also on like the scale of what you define as agroforestry because we have our vegetables gar vegetable gardens um, that exist since I think two thousand and three, and there, for example, from the very very beginning, the first people that started gardening there started planting a lot of trees and some of them are even like intercropped like there's like like rows of trees now in between our vegetable gardens and you could say that's also an agroforestry system although we don't really use it as such um and then some years be some years ago the community decides to start bu buying more land like agricultural land and this is a very very dry season uh, no area <laughs> uh with very poor soil and so we decided like yeah you can see a picture there um we decided to start in like in a way bigger scale like that's a field of 23 hectares and we decided to there start planting different rows of trees and every row is 150 meters wide uh, no long <laughs> and it has a separation of 30 meters between each row and that was for example like that that piece of land is right now um you don't use the word rented like a different farmer um uses that that land and produces their um wheat or like different stuff and we went with him and said like okay like how do the rows need to be positioned so that you can work with your machines in our field and like, that's really like a cooperation that we have with that person that we had to like collectively make a design so that we could with this like really big plot with our really big project of trees work mm -hmm. still with the farmer and it's an organic farmer, but still, like he's not—he doesn't work on a small scale anymore. Like he's really like he—he he has like in total, I think like a thousand hectares. I don't know how much that is in the U.S. for big scale farmers, but here it's quite a lot. Um, so he has like really huge machines, and for him, it's really like important to be like very efficient and like super precise. And he's not gonna stop and water every tree per hand, for example, like we do or something like that. So that's really interesting for me, for example, to see like, to have these both systems, like in our small garden, sometimes we can actually take the time to water every tree by hand if we plant new baby trees and we really want them to thrive, for example. And in the really big field, like we have to develop different systems also because we're really interested in having other farmers in the region adopt also agroforestry systems. And even like for the establishment of these systems, like how you plant the trees and how you establish the rows and how you fence those lines, like everything needs to be efficient in a different scale because you cannot expect 30 people, for example, to mount every line because it's gonna be just probably one farmer with two machines. And yeah, like that needs to be like thought about in that side as well. And yeah, I find that interesting, like making also for us, like making peace maybe also with using more machines or like making more yeah making it more scalable at the cost of losing some of our maybe like ecological dream 
in that sense. Mm -hmm. Finding the balance with the regeneration and the ecological dream. So what kind of trees, what kind of, tell us, a, describe the agroforest a little bit. And I'm curious to know like how you, uh, you said that the soil was really needing to, is dry and the climate's dry and the, and uh, so tell us a little bit about how you monitor the soil health and and um, and the regeneration process. Yeah, mm -hmm. how that goes. Tell so, us the story. Yeah. <laughs> tell us the story. <laughs> yeah. It's a model project or it's a model plot, what we have there. And so we have five rows in total at the moment, and each row is different because it's yeah, it's really like an experimental field and we're like trying things out to then see like what can be really scalable in the region. And the plot has a little bit of a inclination and, and like there's a little bit of a place where it's a little bit lower and there there's a little bit higher concentration of water. It's also a bit more shady because on the outer part there's a forest surrounding it. And then on the other side it's like the opposite, like it's like higher up in a hill, hill and it's way more dry and way more exposed to wind and um, heat and erosion. And so like we started planting the trees on the very top on the first rows where like on the top of the hill and then in the end we planted the ones that were lower to already start creating like a, um, a protection against the wind and the erosion. Mm, and we first started planting rows with a system that tries to replicate a little bit um, and scotch systems I don't know if you guys are familiar with it but like he works a lot in Brazil and does like very dynamic agroforestry where there's like a lot of um pruning and intercropping and then like working with biomass generation and regeneration through that and in Brazil or like in like warmer climates that's really easy because nature regenerates in a really fast pace and so you have a you can produce a lot of biomass very quickly and if you have a really dry climate like here in summer and then a really cold winter like we do, then nature doesn't work as fast. And but there's like a group of people and it's called like dynamic agroforestry. There's a group of people that are trying to like find ways of yeah replicating the system also in temperate climates. And so we have three rows that are like dynamic agroforestry rows, uh, which basically means we have like our main trees, like our primary trees, the trees that we really want to have for the next 50, 100 years that will grow really big and really tall and maybe at the end be harvested as like um, expensive wood, for example. And some of them are like nut trees and some of them are like uh, fruit trees, which before harvesting then are already producing a good that is also more expensive. And in between those trees, there's a lot of bushes and like smaller plants planted. And those ones are said to just be like accompanying species. And some of the bushes, for example, also produce certain fruits that you can also harvest or like you can eat the flowers or you could use the wood for some things. And but the main purpose is just like creating biomass. And so you're constantly pruning those bushes in between and to like accelerate this process of regeneration at the same time as it is offering or already producing a microclimate because like you have a way more more biomass in the system and i find it really crazy for example like now if you go there in summer in the field you can already actually sense or like feel this microclimate like if you walk through those rows it's it feels really like i don't know one two degrees colder than if you're just walking through the plain field of wheat next to it and you can also sense like there's way much more humid retention because of the whole um yeah like the whole foliage coverage but also all of like the roots that are working inside the soil and like i don't know we plant a lot of like associations like some of the bushes we make sure to plant um i don't know like hazelnut for example that is like nitrogen fixing next to trees that have like a special high nitrogen requirements and yeah, like you try to work together with nature in that sense. Yeah, that's really a lot of uh, specialty knowledge and thoughtfulness and careful planning. So it's really looking, you're looking ahead 50 years as well, too. So how is it, um, so the agroforest has been um, growing for how long now? And so you're noticing like the change in the microclimate 
And the I had another question. You were talking about uh, pruning the the bushes. Is that done by humans with uh, you know cutting shears, or do you have uh, animals to help you with that as well? Mm, no, in that sense, we are a vegan project, so we don't have any animals that we use. Um, so we do everything per hand. Um, we could also do it with machines when they're a bit uh, older. Mm -hmm. And yeah, we produce like there's a, some of the trees that we have, for example, are like I said, fruit trees, but most of them are also nut trees because our intention also is that we can um, also as this part of like model project, like offer alternative ways of protein um, for our diets, like in in our food cup. I didn't say that it's also like only vegan and vegetarian. But in the region, it's like super conservative and people still eat a lot of meat and rely on meat as a protein source. And if we can prove like, hey, here are a whole bunch of nuts that you can also eat and instead diminish your meat consumption, like that would be a really big goal for us. And the agroforestry project, the first rows were planted, I'm not 100% sure, but I think six years ago. And But those trees that were planted were at least five years old when they were planted. So yeah the trees are around 10 years old which means like they've been producing fruits or nuts for one or two years already and what kind of um when you harvest those what kind of uh products are you making with those nuts are you are you using the nuts primarily for the community or do you have an abundance to be able to uh share it at market or sell or make not yet. different products no, like the uh, production is still pretty low and so it's still only for us and also like for example our idea would also be we have um walnuts and chestnuts um and our idea would be to sometime have enough of a harvest that we can also produce uh, chestnut flour to make also bread for example with that and for that you need really big amounts and right now we don't have that much so we're not just like eating the nuts as nuts for now mm -hmm. do you have plans to have like a, a grinding mill do you have that mm -hmm. already in place or is that something a project to be built that is a project to be built but maybe it's also a cooperation that can be established with someone in the region that already has a mill that's interesting. And then, so the plants that you're planting, are they uh, native to your region when you're selecting your plants for the agroforest? Are they, are you taking that into consideration as well? Yes. Yes. So we have also a group of people here that are, apart from me, other people that are biologists. And they are also like in terms, are in charge of like nature conservation and like every time we decide to plant a new row, for example, we first like show these people like the list of species that we plant, that we want to plant. And then they say like, hey, yeah, that's native or not native or that's not invasive. So it's OK or something like that. And yeah, because we really put a big focus on not bringing in invasive species, for example. And then I mean, I don't know, like there's a lot of things that like are not necessarily invasive, but it doesn't make sense to plant because of the climate, climatic conditions like they would just not be able to thrive or would never produce the fruits or the nuts that you would want them to produce or something so yeah right right so what are what is uh one of your favorite things about agroforestry because you were sharing earlier that in your studies and your when you were working on your thesis that you got really interested in in agroforestry agroforestry so what was it about it that really excited you mm, i think it's a way much more yeah, sustainable way of doing agriculture in the sense that it like also produ provides way more structure into the landscape and therefore also like a var variety of habitat for way more much more species like i like i said i also studied a lot of agroecology and there we studied a lot of like what are the landscape components needed for different species to thrive and in our monoculture extensive agriculture that we have at the moment there's only one thing for kilometers and kilometers and it's only only one species or like very few species can establish there and agroforestry is like a middle point i think between like having like amazing super sustainable regenerative farms um which are 
yeah like sadly in our capitalistic system not always the most economically profitable ways of farming if you compare it to yeah like i don't know huge industrial farms and i feel like agroforestry like agroforestry you can still do in these like huge monocrop fields uh you can just plant some trees in between or like at least start with that and i feel like maybe that's something that fascinates me or like that really pulls me to agroforestry that maybe that's like a little thing that i think like it's a way that we can maybe like sneak in in conventional agriculture or like monocrops like to try to also there manage to make change and not just like concentrate our change and the people that are like already convinced about doing things differently mm -hmm. and do these uh do the agroforests also um create habitat for natural for local wildlife like have you seen um increase in wildlife definitely yeah like our stripes are like about five meters wide and they also have like a yeah, different structure like there's on like the big trees and then like there's smaller bushes and then smaller plants and flowers and so you have like a lot of um how do you say that like layers um that can offer different habitats for different insects and for different birds and for even like small mammals or yeah like foxes or hedgehogs or um i don't know squirrels or little um rabbits or something like that and yeah we've started to monitor for example the birds populations and you can really see an increase in rare species for example of birds in our region in comparison to some years ago where there was not so many trees or it was mostly monoculture around us what are some of the species that you've seen an increase in Oh, that's not something I can answer. That's not your specialty. That's okay. <laughs> no. <laughs> that's all right. So well, what are some of the challenges that you've experienced uh, with the agroforestry? The droughts is definitely a challenge. Um, like this year, it's been really good in that sense because we've had still some rain. But last year, for example, the last major rain we had was in May, like end of May, and then we didn't have any rain at all until end of september and if you have baby trees that are like five years old they don't have a deep established root system that they can make it and like even bigger trees were really struggling last year and it really makes us question as well like okay how is it like it's just going to continue getting worse and worse and like how do we manage um like mark shepherd for example in his book also talks a lot about like planting so many trees and just like allowing nature to select so to say like the ones that are like conditioned or like capable of um thriving and the conditions that are available are the ones that you should um, keep but every tree also needs like at least like a little mini push to start and i think that's also like a little bit of our question like until which point do you water so that the tree survives or do you not water at all but then like really nothing is gonna live or like like yeah like you need like to to manage to reach this like tipping point where this microclimate is established for example so that other trees can continue growing and yeah i think it's like a little question of like how much um can you say like that like how how much active input do you put into the system so that the system at the end naturally um manages by itself and water is one of our major limiting factors here not because we don't have water available like that's like a, i don't know like a privilege that germany still has i would say or like not northern countries in general in the world still have a lot of groundwater available for irrigation but just yeah like it also involves a lot of effort of like bringing the water into the field and watering and it's really not yeah the natural way of doing things and Right. Do you have a, a water source on the on the property? Do you have ponds and streams and natural water sources? Mm -hmm. that you we have two ponds. Um, one is a natural pond, and the other one was built for, I guess, fire protection measure. Um, and we have like two wells of groundwater that we can use. 
And we uh -huh. have for the gardens, for example, um, we only have compost toilets in the village, but all of the water from, for example, the sinks or the washing machines or the showers, they all go to, um, wait, how do you say that? A water treatment plant. Um, and that water treatment, the, the water from the water treatment plant is also used for the for the forest and for the agroforestry project, for example, like to to water the trees with that water. Oh, is the uh, what what type of what we have some questions related to the agroforestry, but can you tell us a little bit about the water treatment plant? Is that is that are you using? Because um, I've heard of people using some plants and permaculture design for their water for the treatment of gray water. I think like on a smaller scale, but on a larger scale, how how does that, what does your system look like? Is mm -hmm. it more of a traditional water treatment plant that we would see in larger cities or how does that? No, it's also like? a very natural system. Um, I know so many of the terms only in German, but like the water is pumped into the system and then um, a lot of the particles are first just like deposited like they, they stay like in like big pools and then like all of the larger particles just like get deposited into the ground and then just the cleaner water passes through the different systems and then there's also a lot of plants um, that absorb also a lot of the fats for example and that like started like purifying the water and there's like the water just passes through like very different uh, filters like natural filters and then in the very end we also have like a carbon filter and it's not water that we could drink like if we really wanted to have the a, a potable water we would have to have a different very expensive expensive filter that we don't have at the moment and so the water at the end still has a lot of um organic material um but like if you just use it for watering for example in the end it's just like fertile like extra fertilizer that you're providing to the system and we do like tests and like there's no um yeah i think that's also not super easily scalable because we only use biodegradable everything like soaps and shampoo toothpaste blah blah and we really try to stay low on antibiotic use um and like personal antibiotic use and hormonal use because all of those are like also like uh, complicated components for natural treatment plants i would say mm. and we test the water from the water treatment plant at least once or twice a year um to make sure that we're not i don't know like having any like bacterias or like um like infectious potential diseases that could be spread spread out from there right so that water from the water treatment plant will water the gardens and the not the vegetable oh. gardens, mm -hmm. um, just trees and forest, like things that are not like directly then consumed. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. So I am uh, being told that we have some questions from the um, from the audience. So Arib, do you mind coming on microphone and reading the questions? Because I am not able to sure, see I them. Can read them out. So, okay, this one is from Alicia, the first one. Is agroforestry relevant everywhere, including temperate and tropical environments? Definitely. <laughs> um, I mean, like natural environments, before we started doing agriculture in a large scale, they, they always have like a way more complex structure. Like there's always trees and shrubs and smaller plants that creates a really variable structure in the landscape. And agroforestry tries to replicate that um, complexity in the landscape as well. And that's like independent of the region where you are. It's just like going away from like monocultures where you just have one level or one structure for kilometers and kilometers even, and bringing in again, like different structures or like different levels of complexity into the system. Does that help with resiliency that, that complexity and biodiversity yeah because like i said then it offers like different habitats for different species and like the more species you have available 
um, the more, for example, populations regulate by themselves. And so if you have a pest, for example, but you also have a habitat for um, a species that, what is the term? Like it's a predator of this uh, pest, then it gets more like easily regulated. And if you don't have a habitat for this uh, pest control, then you just have like a massive eruption of the pest. And that, for example, then would like not be resilient. <laughs> um, but if you have, yeah, like different habitats for different types of species, then the regulation of the different species happens way more by itself. And if you have more like microclimates, for example, then you also have more rain. And yeah, like then you have like resilient or like you have way less wind erosion or water erosion and all of that. Um, offers more resilience into the system. Mm -hmm. Have you been able to, do you monitor, does your, uh, the, the microbiome of the soil, do you, do you check that mm -hmm. as well? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we do different soil samples and in our gardens, for example, we have even been able to prove that we have increased the, um, the homos, like the most um, rich nutrient dense part of the soil. Um, like we've made our soil more rich since we've started using it as before. Like, and in conventional agriculture, for example, it tends to happen the exact opposite. Like you start depleting the soil more and more and more to the point that the soil is not even fertile, fertile anymore. Like you cannot grow plants without putting extra fertilizer in it, for example. And if you farm in a sustainable way, then the longer you farm, the less you need to fertilize because the system does it by itself. And you can monitor that through soil samples, for example. Mm -hmm. So, okay, Arib, what's the, is there another question? Yes, this is a two-part question. So first one is, is forest farming profitable? And second is, who and where are the likely adopters of agro practice, agroforestry practices? Mm -hmm. um, So the question of if, is forest farming profitable? I think it depends a lot on profitable in terms of what, or like for what do you want to forest farm? We, for example, here have around 70 hectares of forest that belong to us and they are pine monocultures that were planted in the times of the, um, when Germany used to be separated by East and West Germany and like they grew all of those or they planted all of those forests back then because they wanted to have like really fast growing wood available so that they could use it as like heat and building materials and our goal is to convert those forests into a mixed forest again and so we harvest like we select certain trees and we harvest like very selectively and um through selecting just certain trees and not like cutting huge pieces of land at one point then you create like little spaces of light in the forest then also allowed for new species to then start growing there and like you, then you could say like that's very profitable also for the future because you, then you allow other different species to establish that for example can be better for um like different wood that is even better for building for example and then in 50 70 100 years then you have like very very expensive wood being produced in your forest than you otherwise would not have and we use then the for the wood that we collect mostly for heating at the moment because most or like a lot of the wood that we have available at the moment is very low quality because of this monoculture and some of the better quality that we have then we're also starting to dry it in a proper system so that we can then also use it for building um, so I would say like in our scale, it's very profitable. It's definitely not scalable for the whole world. And like, I don't also necessarily want us to continue defore like, like then at a certain point, if you scale it enough, then you end up deforestating, like because then you end up um, cutting more trees than they naturally regenerate or like that, or like, yeah, they don't manage to grow fast enough before you collect them or harvest them. And that's where it stops being, um, sustainable and then also in some later years also not not profitable anymore because 
like you're just using up the the resources of the generations to come in the end and like maybe it feels profitable for you and your generation but in the end it's not very profitable in long-term scale right so Stephen Lincoln it sounds like you're looking at profitability and in terms of sustainability like keeping it uh giving yourself um materials to be able to build buildings as you need them or furniture or to repair buildings and roofs and things like that so you're looking at more of a, a self-sustaining uh, economy is that mm -hmm. economic scale mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah so does um, that mean you do su succession planting like do you for the uh, forestry management with the trees, like do you do, like if you're looking at you uh, hardwood trees, for example, do you do you plan different years? Like how long uh, out do you have your your plans about when you're going to be planting? Are you looking mm -hmm. at like five, ten years? Are you looking at fifty? No, I would say our scale is rather like fifty hundred years. Mm um and yeah like our forest concept is also like a very particular concept like we try i don't know how it is in the usa for example in canada i know like the most typical way of forest management is to select really it's a conventional way of forest far, uh, farming but like you select really big plots and then you cut down all of it and then you replant that whole block on the very second like, I don't know, a day or a week or a month. And, but then all of the trees in that patch are the exact same age. And mm -hmm. then you come back in 30 years and harvest again, the whole patch from scratch. And that again, is not a very resilient system because every tree has the same age. And so every tree also offers the same type of habitat, for example. And then again, you end up in a sort of monoculture. And we really, that's why also we try to like really select the trees that we, we harvest. And we're always making sure that one forest plot always has like multiple generations of trees because also different generations of trees offer different habitats for different species and we don't plant actively as many trees but we make sure that like we have we're offering nature enough opportunities to do that succession by itself so we collect a lot of seeds for example of trees that are um native to this region but not available near us anymore for example and we there's like we have like different yeah like structures that we've built where like squirrels for example or some tree uh, some birds especially like to come and collect those seeds and then they take them somewhere else and then they spread them as part of like their natural um habits and there also we like work in a way more sustainable way because we save a lot of work and nature is way more efficient than us in that sense. And so nature does a lot of our work, we just facilitate it for them, so to say. <laughs> that sounds like a really lovely partnership. And so how can people learn about it? You, um, do you have, is there, a, does Stephen Linden offer educational opportunities? Um, you had mentioned earlier when, when we were talking earlier uh, before the, the podcast about a festival that you offer. So share with the um with the community a little bit about some of the learning opportunities available yeah so Stephen linden is an intentional community and it's also meant to be a model project so we're very interested in like showing people what we're doing and having other people get inspired by what we're doing and learn from what we're doing so as part of our community life we also have a really big seminar center and we receive around 40 no, 4,000 guests a year. 4,000? 4,000 mm -hmm. guests, that's amazing. That's a lot of guests. <laughs> yeah, and we have like a very, very wide variety of seminars that we offer. Um, there is, for example, at the moment, there's a seminar happening where people can learn how to do jams from our local fruits. So like people come and help for a week to like do their own jams and to learn again how to be like self-sufficient in that way. One can also come and help in the garden for a week or in the forest and learn there. But we also have like agroforestry weeks where people come and help us with the pruning. And then there's also like a lot of like social seminars where people learn about like nonviolent communication or about like the foundations of um, an intentional community or um, 
where people can learn about deep ecology and yeah like we have a really really wide variety of offers um there's also opportunities to just come and visit us for like one day and get to see the place and exchange or like get in contact with us oh we, there's a biogas i'm just looking at the web page now and uh, we have a new biogas production plant um and there's a little seminar about that as well now oh what's yeah. what's biogas can you go back mark to the biogas um i think that was up at the top or on a different uh, yeah page. i think it's like a thing that comes and goes like it's a oh, is it rotating? oh okay yeah. there it is there yeah like so like I shortly mentioned, uh, all of our toilets are compost toilets. And for the last 25 years, we've then like literally then composted like the material. And we also then use like the, the resulting earth for planting trees. And we are now experimenting because at the moment, the only unsustainable or like non-sustainable energy source that we have is the gas for our stoves like for cooking and so now we are starting to experiment instead of composting um our feces we're trying to use them for a biogas production plant and like one can use um organic residues from like the kitchen for example and also then um like grass for example that you cut like you can use like a different variety of like organic inputs and in this little plant then like you just like dump everything in so to say and wait a few uh, weeks and then you incubate um some bacteria that then can be able to like decompose all of that and in the decomposition process they produce gas and you can collect that gas and it's biogas in the end and you can use that gas for cooking and right now we're experimenting with that and there's a really funny little instagram video i think um about that where there's a guy that is now the one in charge of this biogas uh, plant that is um preparing pancakes with that biogas now <laughs> and so that was like every saturday he's making pancakes for the community for breakfast <laughs> out of our biogas okay and, uh, so about, like, our dream or vision is that at some point we can stop relying on on like the natural gas that we're using at the moment completely and just like um, rely on our biogas uh that's that's really interesting so it's a uh, so about you get about right now your uh the scale of the biogas is you have you're able to manufacture about an hour's worth of cooking biogas or or do you like i'm curious to know like how much cooking time or how big it is like is it like one little like camping propane stove biogas or or is it much la larger so you can see in that picture if you go back to the top of that page again um yeah there there's this guy <laughs> that is the one doing the biogas and he has this sack on his back and that's a sack filled with biogas and so mm. um like our plant works that you can just like connect that sack into the the plant production and then it fills up with gas and then you can just like exchange the sack and use that sack while the next one is being filled and yeah i don't exactly remember right now how many hours of cooking you actually have per sack but it's definitely more than one hour Right. Yeah. Do you, um, so the stack, that's interesting. So what kind of material do you happen to know what kind of material that is? To I don't. No, I just know that one needs to put like a certain weight on top of it to be able to use it. And it's then like attached to like a, um, oh, how is it? Like, a, like a tube and then the tube is connected mm -hmm. to the actual stove. Oh, that's, that's really interesting. So uh, we're coming to the end of the um, of our conversation. It's been really interesting. Really appreciate the the time that you've spent with us today. Um, what's a really good way for people to be able to learn more about being visit, learning more about the uh, about the uh, seminars and festivals that are coming up? How how can they 
Oh, and you have a podcast as well, right? You, the yeah, I think I have two or three podcasts now. Yeah, like this one, the episode seventy-five, um, is a festival we organized a month ago with young people, and there you can hear like five participants talking about their experience, and that was really cool, and I was part of the organizing team. Um, and then there's another episode where I talk about the garden in a pretty, yeah, the one about 72, the one of market gardening. Um, I talk about the garden in a pretty technical way, if people are interested in that. Um, and then I think the seventh one, or like it was one of like the first ones, um, I talk about my experience being a volunteer. Nice, thank you. So I'm just noticing, uh, Arib, do we have any more questions from the audience? Uh, Before there we... are a few, there are a few and they revolve around the uh, agroforestry ones. Uh, mostly other comments, but this, there are like two. Will livestock damage the trees? And any thoughts about rainfall, runoff and infiltration with the agroforestry? Um, so there are also some agroforestry systems that work with livestock because livestock can also be very beneficial in our case yeah i won't go too much into detail at the moment about that but in our case our project is a vegan project and so we don't have any livestock um but that doesn't necessarily mean that livestock is automatically bad for agroforestry systems um yeah one can have actually like a pretty positive um how do you say like double-sided um positive relationship in agroforestry systems with livestock and the second question was um let me read that out again there is I hear there's a question okay, about any like, thoughts about uh, rain, yeah any thoughts about rainfall runoff and uh, infiltration with agroforestry yeah so like um one of the problems with droughts for example is that the soil gets really really dry as well and so when you do end up having rain water then just like um how do you say like like rushes away and like it doesn't have a way of infiltrating into the soil and agroforestry provides again like a deeper root structure and through that it also um creates again a more porous structure into the ground so that when the rain comes it can actually infiltrate and first of all then feed all of the plants and all of the roots that are inside the ground and then further along infiltrate all of the way back down into the groundwater so that's also definitely like one of the key um, positive effects of like why it's important to go back to having this like multi multi-structural systems. Um, yeah, because if you just like have like bare grounds or uh, like really dry grounds, no matter how much it rains, the rain or the water will never actually manage to make it all the way back into the ground system. Thank you. And I've noticed Dr. Wayne Dorman has joined us on camera. Hello, Wayne. Uh, Hi, Marina. That was awesome. Thank you so much. Um, we sure appreciate your willingness to come on. Your knowledge is broad. It's, it's passionate. You can see you really <laughs> care. Um, I'm going to give you a quick Mark Shepard quiz. My one little one. So don't feel bad if you can't get this, but I bet you will. What does stun mean? Stun. Mark Shepherdism. Oh, it's one of Mark Shepherd's uh, recipes. Mark Shepherd. So, <laughs> How do you spell that word? S T U N. I don't know the word. Maybe Can you maybe. type it into the chat. It's it's more like an acronym, right? An acronym, but but it does. It has relevance, but anyway, I used to be Mark's partner. Mark and I are really good friends. It means strikingly terrific utter neglect. And that's what uh -huh. Mark <laughs> is the most ultimate form of agroforestry, which is mm -hmm. 
you don't have to do anything. Let nature take its course. You neglect everything you have, and still it produces it produces something that can be of value to to all those members of the ecosystem that are using it. I, I did have one more serious question, then I'll end. Um, and thank you again so much. Is there dedicated farmers? Does everyone sort of pitch in on the farming side? Uh, and, and then that question relates more broadly to the community, but just focused on the farming side. Um, how does that work? Yeah. Um... So we are a group of dedicated farmers that also get paid to be the farmers of the village. And our wage is independent of the amount of produce that we end up managing to produce. Like, of course, we have at the beginning of the year um, a, a plan or like a like achieve or like a goal that we want to achieve. Um, but if, for example, we manage to or like we end up having a complete drought or like a huge pest or something and all of our crops fail, then our wages would not be dependent on that. It's a little bit similar to like a CSA, community supported agriculture system in that sense. And then there are like specific, we have our volunteers as well who are like there for one season with us and get to learn a lot about it. And we also have different uh, weeks during the season where guests can come and help us. And then also people from the community, for example, in like bigger action come and help for like some couple of hours. Um, yeah, but like I would say like it's mostly like a fixed team of people that are in charge of everything and then we invite people when we need the help. Um, but it's not like anyone, everyone at any given point is doing some gardening work. Super. And I assume that that goes across the board for other things that are of community needs. So the wastewater treatment plant operation or or if there's plumbing needs in the buildings or there's 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 dedicated people, but then there's probably some volunteering also. And there's a lot of knowledge, like there's some dedicated people and there's always still some people that are not that specific part of that team, but still have the knowledge that could like jump in, for example, if needed, or if that one specific person is not available at the moment or something like that. And that also makes like in a social sense, our system very resilient, like that we are not like utterly dependent on one person for every single chore, but like different people can um, jump in and help with every any needed task. And then last, would you or other experts from Sieben Linden be willing to come back sometime in the future and speak with us again? Because we really enjoyed it. It's been great. <laughs> Uh, I would say yes. <laughs> Super. Well, that's awesome. Back to you, Lisa. All right. Well, thanks, Wayne. Lorena, thank you so much for being with us. Is there any final words that you would like to share before we sign off? Because we are at the top of the hour and uh, uh, and we've had a really lovely time. In our, I have really enjoyed our conversation. I hope you have too. And uh, here's your opportunity to share anything with the community that you would like to share. Um, yeah, so like we have our, there's an Instagram page that we have. We have our podcast, we have our website, we have a YouTube channel, a Facebook page. <laughs> and like, we really try to make an effort into spreading our knowledge into the world. And we have a lot of different initiatives within our community. Like right now, I just talked a little bit about our agroforestry and gardens, but we also have um, economy of the common goods uh, with Christian Felber. We had a festival last year with him, for example. So like we also have like a current dedicated into or like thinking about like how can we do economics in a different way or like a more sustainable way. And we have a group of people, for example, that is dedicated in doing a little bit more of research of like, how can we manage to make an established older community still attractive for younger people, for example. And I'm also part of that initiative in that sense. And um, yeah, I think like I invite you guys to explore a little bit of our content and get inspired and reach out, maybe see like in which ways you can also impact your own regions. and. Um, yeah, work as a network and start inspiring change in different corners of the world in different ways, in different levels. Not only the ecological aspect, it's also the social, the eco economic aspect of it all. 
That's true. True. Do you, how do people? What's the best way for people to get in contact with you? Do you have an email, or do you, um, can they find you on the website if they want to come uh, specifically have a question for you or want to learn more about the seminars? What's the best way? With me personally, yeah. So like, there's a general um, email that one can reach. Yeah, like in the contact and the web page, there's a general email that one can reach for. Um, yeah, like the community in general, and there one can like also make questions about the seminars, for example, and like anything related to the community. And if there is like a specific question deriving from this uh, this presentation that I offered now, then maybe you could write me an email. And um, I don't know if I can write my email or if you guys send it afterwards. I can. We can provide. I have your email. I will provide that. Yeah. Terrific. Well, thank you very much for joining us. I know you are um, on a, in a different time zone, so it's getting uh, late for you for your day. So thank you for sharing your time with us at the end of a very busy day. And uh, it was really enjoyable to learn about Stephen Linden. And I hope to come visit someday. Yeah, very welcome to me <laughs> to come and get to see this place. To come too. And you're welcome to come here and visit us at our different locations including uh, one here in Colorado and new one we're doing in South Dakota so can come visit us yeah thank you and thank you also for the invitation to talk today here yep thank you all right thank you economic action team community all right what do you say what's what's the saying Wayne take us out Mark hey everybody I bet you enjoyed that immensely that was one of our most amazing presentations here at the EAT community. Please look forward to our next podcast in the very near future, and we look forward to seeing you again on the EAT community podcast.